Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. I don't know of any announcements. I was just trying to think of... uh, Alan, you know of any announcements? We had the congregational meeting and everything already, so... No? Nothing new? Yeah, okay. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a a few moments of silent prayer as uh, we prepare to uh, study the Word and to worship through the teaching of the Word. Scripture emphasizes from the Old Testament uh, all the way through to the uh, future uh, millennial messianic kingdom that it's important for believers to always be properly prepared spiritually before they come into the presence of the Lord which is done through cleansing, and there are various different ways in which that is done in the different dispensations. But in the church age, Scripture says if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you a chance to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word, that as we study through the context of Scripture from the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation, we see that there is an overarching plan and a purpose that you have and that all things fit together in a a very uh, intricate pattern. As we study your word, we see how these things come together and that that which is fulfilled in the New Testament was prophesied in the Old Testament Uh, down to specific details. Now, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that we can be encouraged by this, being reminded that even when things seem out of control in our own lives or somewhat chaotic, that nevertheless you are still in control and that there is a plan and a purpose and we can relax and trust in you. Father, we pray that as we study that, that the things that we study will be clear and we can gain a greater understanding and appreciation for the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today is a feast day in Israel's calendar, in their uh, ritual calendar. Tonight at sundown, which is about now, uh, the Feast of uh, Shavuot begins. It's translated into English weeks. The OT is a plural. Uh, Sheva is the Hebrew for seven, or seven is like Shavat for the uh, seventh day of the week. And so Shavuot is seven, it's a plural, it's seven, seven, so that's 49, so 49 days after the uh, Feast of First Fruits, then, then you have uh, the day of Pentecost. That was the other name for it. And so Pentecost, of course, has a significance 
in Christianity because of Acts chapter 2, and this is the time when uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon the uh, 11 apostles, and, uh, and when they were gathered together in Jerusalem, and this is what gave birth to the church. So if you want to get a sense of what Shavuot's about, turn with me to Leviticus 23. I'll try to tie a couple of things together for us in understanding the significance of this. As we've seen in our study of the, the feasts and the sacrifices, there's always a prophetic element to the feast looking forward to something in, uh, in Israel's uh, uh, future related to God's plan for Israel, and then we can see that fulfillment as well in the, uh, in the New Testament. In Leviticus 23, look at verse 15, uh, 15 down through about 18. We'll just look at those, those few verses. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from that, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall uh, offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So the seventh Sabbath, is that's the plural, uh, Shavuot. So this is why it's called uh, uh, the Feast of Weeks or, the, or Feast of Sevens. Or, and then it adds up to 50 days. So that's Pentecost where we get Pente for 50. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah, they shall be a fine flour, they shall be baked with leaven, and they are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the, with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, the Feast of Shavuot is one of the... Uh, Three major pilgrimage feasts, according to Deuteronomy 16.16, 16. you have Passover, Pentecost, and then the um, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the picture is of these two, two loaves coming. It's the first fruits, and first fruits is a term that is used in the Scripture to refer to Israel as the first fruits to God. The term first fruits is also used in the New Testament to refer to uh, the church, and it's also a term that it refers to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, we believe, re- rose from the dead on the third day after the crucifixion, and then approximately um, 40 days later, he ascended to heaven and told the disciples to wait there in Jerusalem that for the coming of uh, of the Holy Spirit. And so they waited in Jerusalem there for the next 10 days, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And that is referred to in uh, the New Testament as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in, New, in the church age, the baptism of the Holy Spirit refers to the fact that God has taken Jews and Gentiles and brought them together as one in the body of Christ. And so this uh, this applies only to the church age. And so when you look at the imagery that we find in uh, Leviticus 23, where you take the two loaves, and they're not unleavened bread. Leaven in Scripture usually depicts, almost always depicts sin and the presence 
of sin and evil because of its permeating effect. And just as the bread, the uh, matzah in the um, in the Passover meal depicted the foreshadowed the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as being without sin. Now these two loaves have the presence of of uh, leaven in them, so this does not indicate that which is sinless. So it, uh, the usual interpretation that I read from is that the two the two loaves one represents uh, Jews, one represents Gentiles, and then they are brought together as one, and this is fulfilled in the uh, uh, in the in the day of Pentecost with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that it wipes out individual Jewish identity, ethnic identity, but it indicates that in the church there there is not something specific related to ethnicity, especially of being uh, Jewish. As in the Old Testament, it was only a Jew, only a male Jew, that could go into the uh, tabernacle and later the temple in order to to worship, whereas in the church age, in the body of Christ, every believer has immediate access to God. Now, this is going going to change again in the future, after the tribulation is over, when we get into the millennial period, which is what we've been studying for the last several weeks, based on Revelation chapter 20, we get into the future kingdom of the Messiah, then again the emphasis goes back to Israel, and Israel's worship becomes the central focal point for worldwide worship. As we have seen in the uh, last three weeks, we saw, first of all, that Israel would have a future king, kingdom, that would be ruled by a descendant of David according to the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God would give him an eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal uh, uh, descendant, a seed, that would sit on the throne forever and ever. So in the terms of the Davidic covenant, there's the promise of that eternal, that line that's going to end in the uh, a, a physical human descendant of David who will rule that future kingdom. But as we saw when we looked at the passages, the prophecies in the Old Testament, linking together passages such as Psalm 2, 3 and, verses 3 and 4, Isaiah uh, 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, um, Micah 5, 2, which talks about the fact that he who is from uh, eternity is born in Bethlehem, and that indicates that there is an element in messianic prophecy which shows that the Messiah is not only going to be fully human because he's from the seed of David and he is, is born physically, a child is born to us uh, in Isaiah uh, 9-6. This in- indicates he's human, but he's also called mighty God. He is called uh, Emmanuel, God with us. So it indicates that he is also viewed as full deity. All of this from the uh, Old Testament prophecies. So Israel is seen to have a future kingdom ruled by a descendant of David. The second thing that we looked at was last week, focusing on the nature of that future kingdom, is that in the future kingdom all Nations will come to Israel in order to worship. And this is seen specifically in Isaiah chapter 2, where we 
uh, read, He shall judge between the nations, referring to the Messiah, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. This emphasizes the fact that there will be no more war during that period. In Isaiah 2, verses uh, 2 and 3, all the nations will come to the uh, mountain of God and worship there, and that relates to a future temple that is built in Jerusalem. So what we see is that during the church age, there's an emphasis on what God is doing through the church, meaning all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and that they are brought together as one in the body of Christ. And then after the rapture of the church, after the tribulation, then there is a return focus as God fulfills the prophecies that he made uh, to Israel to establish a kingdom that is ruled by David, who's referred to in prophecies in, in Ezekiel as David the prince. Now, there's three key people to keep in mind when we're, when we're looking at the millennial government. There is the Messiah, who is the overall ruler. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Then under him, you have the resurrected David the prince, who also rules over Israel. And then, as we'll see in our study of Ezekiel 40 to 48, there is a human prince who is a descendant of David, who is... Uh, a, a human ruler born during the period of the of the uh, of, of the millennial kingdom, and he is a ruler over Jerusalem. So there's those three key figures to keep in mind. Otherwise, you can sort of get lost when you're reading through the uh, the details of Scripture. And I'll point those out as we go through those texts. So we saw that the kingdom is going to be ruled by a descendant of David. That there's a promise of the Messiah as a physical son of David. We saw the nature of the kingdom as one where there is a worldwide uh, worship of God focusing on a temple in Jerusalem, Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, and that there will be no more war. It will be a time of unprecedented uh, world peace and prosperity, uh, Isaiah 2, 4, as well as other passages, in a time when the curse, especially as it affected Nature as it affected the animosity between animals and between animals and uh, human beings is removed in passages such as Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, where we read that the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. It goes on to talk about how the nursing child shall put its hand down in a cobra's hole and a weaned child shall put its hand in a viper's den. So then it's obvious that none of these prophecies have ever been fulfilled if you take them in any kind of, uh, of literal manner. Uh, if you don't take them in a literal manner, then you end up just basically destroying the meaning uh, the meaning of the text, especially when you compare it with other other passages in context that are taken very clearly to be uh, to be literal, so there is the the future king, the future kingdom, and then there's an emphasis on is on Jerusalem that Israel will be united. They return to the land. There's a unity. The, there's no longer a distinction between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They're united as one. And Jerusalem is the undivided capital, 
and the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem as the center of the nation. And we see this, especially in Ezekiel 37, since we're going to spend some time in Ezekiel tonight. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter chapter 37. That's probably in a part of your Bible that hasn't been uh, used very much. Make sure the pages don't stick together too much. Uh, Ezekiel, The first part of Ezekiel 37 is really a picture of God bringing the nation back together. It's that, uh, this is a chapter that the, uh, that, that song in the fifties, the dim bones and bones and dry bones was, was based on that the ankle bones connected to the foot bone and the leg bones connected to the ankle bone. And, and that's what gave the inspiration for that, uh, that song. But what this depicts is how God was, is going to restore the Jews to the land of Israel that he has has given them. And if you look down in verse 11, we get God's interpretation of the vision that he gave to, uh, to Ezekiel. In verse 11, uh, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That means there's no distinction between Judah and Israel or the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost. And we ourselves are cut off, depicting a time in the future when Israel would completely despair of any future or of any hope. And in verse 12, God says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. So there is the promise of God of a national restoration and a resurrection of uh, Jewish saints to reestablish them in the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. And then verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Now, this passage refers to a corporate or national regeneration as God is going to give a special dispensation or manifestation of the Holy Spirit to the nation Israel. This is what is uh, foundational in the, in the New Covenant. The New Covenant focuses on, on just that, the, the role of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the nation. Now, when you go on in Ezekiel 37, and you read, skip down with me to verse 25. We see the promise of that restoration. Let's look at, start with verse 24. All of the section in between simply reiterates that promise that God is going to take the Israelites from among the nations, such as in verse 21, gather them from among the nations wherever they've gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. I believe that is what we're seeing partially today. And it's not the ultimate fulfillment in terms of a regenerate nation does not occur until the end of the millennial kingdom. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. And then we skip down to verse 24, and who's the ruler? David, my servant, shall be king over them. Now, this is some people think this is a reference to the Messiah as a son of David. 
But you have David mentioned too many times in different passages as David the prince, uh, the ruler over the people. So he, this is the resurrected uh, David ruling over Israel. Uh, and, and how the division of authority goes, I don't know. But he's ruling under the Lord Jesus Christ over the nation Israel. Then we read in verse 25, that they, then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant. So that takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant and the original promise of the land, which has never been completely, uh, completely, uh, controlled by, by the nation in history. Uh, the land that I've given to Jacob my servant where your fathers dwell, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. That means unending. See, that has never happened in history. They've never been restored to the land. The restoration that occurred after the captivity in Babylon was only a few that returned to the land in terms of the total diaspora. And so now you have, and then in in AD 70, they're ejected from the land again when the Romans destroyed uh, the temple and uh, and conquered uh, conquered Judea. So this is a return to the land that will be forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Furthermore, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Now, this is another reference to the new covenant. The primary passage for the new covenant is Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 to 33, where the promise is specifically related to God putting his spirit within them so that there's no longer any need for one neighbor to teach another because everyone, referring to everyone in Israel, everyone will know God and know that he is God. So this talks about a specific and a unique ministry of the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life of Israel during the millennial kingdom. So God says that he's going to make this covenant. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. That means it's an unending covenant in contrast to the Mosaic covenant, which was a temporary covenant. And as we studied a while back in our study in Hebrews, there's the Abrahamic covenant is a permanent covenant. It's expanded by the uh, land covenant. It's expanded by the Davidic covenant, and it's expanded by the new covenant, all related back to that never-ending permanent Abrahamic covenant. So this expands on that. It replaces the temporary Mosaic covenant. It's an everlasting covenant, and God says, I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now, that's a reference to a future temple. Now, so far, there have been two temples. The first temple, which was the Solomonic Temple, was uh, first dedicated in approximately 970 B.C., and that temple lasted until Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. And in 586, the Babylonians and their third invasion of of Judah, conquered Judah, destroyed the temple, and they took a third group of hostages and exiles out of the land for 70 years. This was uh, stated by Jeremiah as well as by Daniel to be a punishment upon the house of Israel, which went out, which was destroyed in 722, and the house of Judah because of their idolatry and because they had rejected God. This is what Ezekiel states uh, in this same passage back in verse 
uh, 23, he alludes to this. He says, in terms of the future kingdom, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And then they shall be my people and I will be their God. So that is yet future. So in these verses that I'm reading, the focus is on the establishment of that future covenant that occurs at the second coming of Christ when he establishes the kingdom. And then in verse, and then he will also establish his sanctuary. This will be the third temple. So the first temple is a Solomonic temple. The second temple was the temple that was built, uh, was started under Zerubbabel and due to the, uh, the, uh, uh, influence and the driving force of uh, the prophet Zechariah and Haggai, it was finally finished in 516 B.C., and that second temple really had two stages. Some people get confused on this. You don't have a Zerubbabel temple and then a Herodian temple. It's all one temple because the sacrifices never stopped. So they continued, and they continued to sacrifice uh, on the Day of Atonement and continued the sacrifices of the temple all the way through Herod's Reconstruction Project, which began uh, a little bit before uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was born. It began, I think, around 10 B.C. or so, and then it continued, and it was around 45 or 46 A.D. that it was finally completed. So it wasn't even completed during the time that uh, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth. So you have... Uh, the first temple, the second temple, which is destroyed then by uh, the Roman armies in A.D. 70. And that ended the uh, kingdom of Judea, the province of Judea. The Jews were scattered. There was the first Jewish revolt that occurred between 66 and 70. And then there's a second Jewish revolt that really sort of put the icing on the cake as far as the Romans were concerned that took place in 135, also refer, it's referred to as the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Now, during after that, it angered Hadrian, the emperor, so much that he came in and he renamed uh, various areas. Uh, for example, he called Jerusalem Aeoli Capitolina, which had applied his family name to the city and uh, got rid of the name Jerusalem, expelled all of the Jews. That was one of only two time periods in history when Jews were not allowed to live in Jerusalem. There was that time period during the under the Romans, and then there was a time period recently between the Jewish War for Independence in 1948 and the time that when they retook the old city, retook what is East Jerusalem. This is the area that's in the news so much now because of the fact that the uh, our president and his administration got all uh, bent out of shape over the fact that uh, Jews were uh, building in East Jerusalem. Well, East Jerusalem covers that whole area of the old city. It covers uh, the Mount of Olives. It covers uh, numerous, uh, a wide number of those um, sacred sites that are significant to uh, Judaism and significant to Christians and a number of places there that are also significant uh, for a number of Muslims. And so it's uh, Jerusalem has been at the focal point of, um, of, of this fight, but there have been Jews there living in Jerusalem ever since the 
AD 70, except for those two times. So the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the second temple, and then this refers to a yet future temple. Now, we believe that there's another temple that's going to be built during the tribulation period. This is the temple that's mentioned in Revelation 11, uh, 1 and 2, and we've studied that uh, in detail. And this is going to be a, an apostate temple, but it's obviously it has to be built sometime in the future. We don't know when that will be. Uh, that and it's going to replace what is currently there, or some think that it's going to be built in another area up on the Temple Mount. And there's some debate there, but uh, most scholars believe it must be built on the same original site as the Temple, which means that um, that the Dome of the Rock has to be removed somehow. Something will cause it to to disappear. Er, could be an earthquake, could be war, destroyed in war. Any number of things could uh, could bring that about, we don't know. And nobody is trying to make that happen, although there's always some groups out there who want to accuse uh, Christians of trying to make that happen. No Christian has ever tried to instigate any kind of violence or any kind of anything like that to try to make prophecy come true, so to speak. Uh, that's just uh, every now and then I hear about that. Never have I heard it from anybody who's a Christian. I always hear it from people who have heard that some, somehow, uh, somewhere. But what we see in Ezekiel is a clear prophecy that there is going to be this future sanctuary in their midst forever. And God says in verse 27, my tabernacle, and this is the word mishkan, which is the same word that's used for tabernacle back in uh, Exodus. And it's from the uh, Hebrew word that means a dwelling place. It's where in Greek you get the word skene, uh, other languages have, a, even Russian has a cognate for that. It means a dwelling place. It's where we get the word Shekinah in referring to the dwelling glory of God in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory. All of those, all of those words relate to one another. And so God says that he will establish his dwelling place there with them. And he says, indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify, which means to set apart Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, that prophecy has never, ever been fulfilled. So that's a future fulfillment, and so that is something to look forward to. Now, the next couple of chapters in Ezekiel 38 and 39 describe an invasion that occurs in Israel that takes place sometime uh, during the the in future, some put it before the tribulation, some put it in the first half of the tribulation period, some put it uh, early in the second half of the tribulation as a prelude to uh, to the uh, campaign of Armageddon. And then we come to the end of chapter 39, and following this invasion, there is the restoration of the nation uh, to the land, beginning in verse 21. Now, before I get there, and before we look at that, I want to go back and emphasize a couple of things about the uh, centrality of Jerusalem in the future for the future of Israel. Jerusalem is the location of the future temple that is described here in in uh, Ezekiel 40 through 48. Now, a lot of people, when they come to this section, they have a number of questions about it, which we'll cover tonight and next week. So if you have any questions, write them down, remember them so you can ask. Um, 
But Jerusalem is at the very heart of the whole biblical history of Israel from the time that David conquered Jerusalem in 1050. In fact, you can go back even further than that to Genesis. Uh, in Genesis chapter uh, 14, when the five kings invaded into the uh, Middle East under Keterleomer and various other kings in that uh, confederacy, that alliance, they invaded down through the Jordan River Valley around the, uh, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, which wasn't the Salt Sea or Dead Sea at that point. They uh, conquered Sodom. They, actually, they just raided Sodom, Gomorrah, and the five cities of the plains, took a num- number of captives with them, took a number of, um, uh, you know, looted all of the towns, and then once they had all of their booty, they headed, uh, they headed north. And because they had captured Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, and they were headed uh, away. They had Lot and his wife and his family. Uh, Abraham gathered together all of his servants that were basically served as a small militia force, and they headed north and went into battle north of the present site of, of, of Dan in the north of Israel, and they recaptured uh, all of the captives. They defeated the army, the alliance of Keterleomer, and this was a sign of God using Abraham to bless uh, his neighbors. He was to be a blessing to all people. And then they, and he restored all of the booty to the people, but he took a 10% of it, he took a tithe of it, a tenth of it, and he gave it to this somewhat uh, mysterious figure called uh, Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, in Salem. Now, Salem was the old name for Jerusalem. It's still preserved in the name uh, in the last uh, couple of syllables in Yerushalayim. It's based on the root shalom, meaning peace. So the city of Salem was the location of this king of righteousness that, uh, that Abraham then honors by giving him, uh, as an offering to God, a tenth of the spoil that he took from the, uh, from the Keterleomer, uh, armies. So that's really the first mention of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And then you skip, that happens around, uh, 2000, uh, 2050 BC. And so you skip forward a, a, a thousand years before Abraham, I mean, uh, David, captures that from the Jebusites. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it tells the story of, of David capturing the, uh, this, this small city uh, that becomes known later as Ear David or the city of David. And it's really not a very large area. When you stand there on the, up on the Mount of Olives or up on the Temple Mount and you look down and you can see it, you just realize it's just this, this very small landmass that was the ancient city of David. So that became the capital then of the United Kingdom, and it flourished tremendously under David and Solomon. And when we read through the text and study the descriptions in First Kings, it was just a one of the most glorious cities in the ancient world during the time of those glorious days of David and Solomon. And then as the kingdom split into the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Jerusalem became the capital of the southern kingdom. And uh, as the kingdoms deteriorated, eventually uh, the southern kingdom was defeated by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar in 586. But then in 538, 
Cyrus gives a decree to Zerubbabel to send him back to to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the city. And he goes back with about 55,000 settlers, and they began the process of cleaning up all of the rubble and reestablishing themselves in the land, and yet they, and they faced a number of enemies because the Assyrians had repopulated the area north of there in what is known as Samaria, uh, what is now pretty much the area of the West Bank, with a lot of different ethnic groups, and they had intermarried with some of the Jews that had been left there. And so they became a, a mixed ethnic group, and they were very hostile to these Jews who were coming back into the land to reestablish their national homeland. Sounds awfully current, doesn't it? And so they, re, they, they come back, they're faced with all of this hostility, they're faced with terrorism, they're faced with uh, various military threats, and they get very discouraged just in the few short years they're back. And then finally, through Zechariah and Haggai, they rebuild the temple. And then it's almost 60 or 75 years later, and they still haven't rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is sent back by Artaxerxes. He's given permission to go back and to rebuild the walls so that the city can have, have security from its enemies. Now, in Daniel chapter 9... In Daniel 9.25, we're told that, that it is that decree to go back to Jerusalem for Daniel to rebuild the cities that begins the countdown for that time period that's decreed for Israel of the 490 years or Daniel's 70 weeks. And it's in those the last week of that period that gets separated out. There's the a prophecy that at the end of the 49 weeks or 483 years that the Messiah will be cut off, and that fits the time period when uh, Jesus appeared and was uh, Jesus appeared as the Messiah and was crucified. And then there's a time gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. That's the intervening age in which we're living now. And then the 70th week relates to uh, relates to the future time uh, of tribulation. But during this, all of this time, Jerusalem is the focal point. It is the national heart of Israel and the focal point of numerous prophecies. You don't, I'll just read a few to you and give you the references. You can look at them later. Uh, I had one of those glitches before class tonight. As I say, for some reason, I didn't save. I thought I was saving my PowerPoint and it didn't get saved. And when I got here, I had no PowerPoint. So, uh, I'll just read you the references, and you can write them down and take a look at them later. At the end of Joel, in Joel 2, verses thir- verse 32, the last verse in Joel, and then Joel 3, 1 through 3, we have the uh, <clears throat> focus on what happens at the very end of the tribulation period when Israel calls upon the Messiah to deliver them. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. Now, what I'm focusing on here is that there is a future for Israel, for Jerusalem. And we have to understand this in the context, especially today, of all of the uh, arguments and fights and everything that are going on in relationship to to Jerusalem, whether it should be a divided city, united city, or or what's going on there. 
Joel 3.1, God said, For behold, in those days and at that time, so this is in the future, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the same restoration that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapter 37 as well as in 39, uh, 21 through 29. In those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations. And notice the last phrase, God judges them because they've divided up my land. And what do we see going on right now ever since the uh, Jews have returned to the land in the late 19th century with the rise of uh, modern Zionism and the first Aliyah going up, uh, the first return in the, in the uh, 1890s. What we've seen is that the Gentile powers, the French, the British, uh, the Arabs, have been dividing up the land so that it is not all under the control of Israel. In fact, I heard today, I saw a report today that, um, uh, the British government, just another example of wonderful Western European support for for uh, the Jews who are not the oppressing power in the Middle East. It's the Arabs that are the oppressing power in the Middle East. But that the British have uh, have told the um, uh, told the Israelis that they can't put out uh, tourist brochures that depict the Western Wall. Because the Western Wall is in Eastern Jerusalem, and the Western Wall, therefore, is not that that wasn't under uh, under the control of Israel in the pre-1967 borders. And so, by putting a picture of the Western Wall on a travel brochure, then that that makes it seem as if this is part of Israel. And so, the British and their wonderful and continued anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. Are, are basically saying, um, you know, you can't, uh, you, you've got to get rid of all those pictures of the, of the uh, Western Wall if you're going to promote tourism in Israel, in Britain. You can't act like that's yours. So this is part of the ongoing, ongoing problem. But in the future, uh, God is going to judge the nations for dividing up the land. Then in Joel 3:17 we read, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. This occurs again in the period of the Messianic kingdom, the same period we're talking about in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 40 through 48. I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens, that is foreign uh, conquerors, Gentile powers, no alien shall ever pass through her again, a united Jerusalem in the future. But Judah, verse 20, Joel 3.20, but Judah shall abide forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. Then if we skip over to Zechariah, Zechariah has some uh, really powerful things to say about Jerusalem. In the eighth chapter of Zechariah, uh, we have a prophecy, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That is the dwelling of God in the, in the future uh, messianic temple of Ezekiel 40 to 48. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. 
Then in verse 8, God says, I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So these are just a few. I could go through dozens and dozens more verses that emphasize God's promise to bring Israel back to the land and restore them to the land uh, in the future, and where he will take up his dwelling in the land and in Jerusalem. But it is not all peaceful. Prior to that establishment of the temple, God warns in Zechariah 12:2, "Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege, that is when the Gentile powers lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem." And in verse three, and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away shall be cut in pieces. So this picture is that future assault on Jerusalem. And we see all the things that are going on now simply foreshadow that. Even in Revelation 11, 1 and 2, it talks about how how God tells John to measure the courtyard and everything from the courtyard out is trampled by the Gentiles. So it is not until the Messiah comes, restores the Jews to the land completely and establishes his kingdom that we see Jerusalem at peace and a unified Jerusalem. But that will con- it will continue to be a problem uh, until then. Now, in 1967, in the, in the Six-Day War, the uh, Israeli army defeated the Jordanians and recaptured uh, the old city. Now, this is really important to understand in terms of thinking about current events in light of uh, biblical prophecy, because the Bible predicts that even though now we see a unified Jerusalem, that if biblical prophecy is true, then there will come a time when much of the city is going to once again return or fall into, uh, into Gentile hands and be trampled down, according to Revelation 11. Also, these passages in Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 2. But we don't know when that's going to be, so we can't sit around and act like it's, we can engage in some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy and say, well, you know, this, we just need to uh, go ahead and allow this to happen. Uh, we have a, an administration right now in Washington that is the least supportive of Israel of any, uh, any administration since Israel gained their independence in 1948. And this is particularly, uh, scary or worrisome for any believer because of the promises in the Abrahamic covenant that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And so there is a judgment for those, historically, for those who are anti-Semitic. I remember um, Frederick the Great once asked one of, his, uh, one of his generals, said, give me, in a short answer, tell me why you think that the Bible is true. And his general looked at him and said, uh, sir, it's the Jews. That's the short answer. Because as, a, as an ethnic group, there has been no change over the millennia, and yet you can't point to any other group that has ma- maintained that ethnic uh, unity and identity for that long because God has a plan uh, plan for Israel. Now, another thing that is, that's going on today that we have to be aware of in terms of the hostility 
to uh, this this sort of veiled hostility to Israel. It's a it's a backhanded support that we have to watch out for. Is to understand the importance of Jerusalem within a broader uh, religious context. And a problem that we have in in Western civilization is that we we have become so deeply and profoundly secular that we just don't understand how somebody can be driven 150% by their religious beliefs. And so because of that, we misunderstand, misinterpret what is happening within uh, Islam, specifically radical Islam. Now, within radical Islam, you've got several different trends going on. On the one hand, you have the Shiites, and on the other hand, you have the Sunni. Now, within the Sunni, which are a broader uh, group and the Sunni pretty much dominate in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, uh, most of Iraq. Although there's a large segment of Shia there, and that's why you've had a lot of the violence that took place in 2004, 2005, uh, and following between uh, the Sunni and, and the Shia. But within the Sunni, you have an extremely virulent form of radical Islam that's promoted by the Wahhabis. And in Wahhabism, there is a, a belief that is, that is so hostile to any kind of, of other religion, anything that may become worshipped by God or honored uh, religiously uh, has to be destroyed. And within Wahhabism, uh, I think it was early in the 1800s when they captured the area around, I believe it was Medina, uh, where, or wherever Muhammad is buried. They wanted to completely destroy Muhammad's tomb because, to, in their view, too many Muslims were coming and, and virtually worshiping, uh, at that site. And they want to remove all this. Now, one, uh, one example of that, uh, as it's played out in recent years was back in uh, 2000, uh, back in 1998, the uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, who were primarily Sunni, were influenced by uh, Wahhabi. The, the Wahhabis have been they, they have all that wonderful Saudi oil money behind them, and uh, almost and I've been told that every mosque that's been built around the world for over the last 30 years has been built with Wahhabi money. And the Wahhabi money comes in, builds the mosque, and puts a Wahhabi radical uh, Sunni uh, imam in to, uh, to teach and to radicalize uh, the, the Muslims. And we have that goes on in Houston. It goes on in numerous places in the United States. But uh, they have a complete disregard and hostility to the religious sites and the, the holy sites of other religions. This is why they influenced the Taliban in 98 to destroy those 2,000-year-old statues uh, of Buddha in the Bamiyan Valley in Afghanistan and blew them up. Uh, there have also been a num- number of other instances where they have uh, done the same thing. For example, there was, a, and I forget the name of the site now, north of Baghdad in Iraq, where th- there was a, a, a mosque with a gold dome that was the location of the uh, where the ninth and tenth uh, imams had had uh, lived. The eleventh imam is known as the Mahdi. He's supposed to return in the future. Now, what I've learned recently that that's that's new is that in Shia eschatology they put a lot of emphasis on the return of the Mahdi. 
And what I've read up until recently was that this is pretty much uh, unique, or at least that was the idea that I had gotten unique and uh, unique emphasis in, in Shia. But it's also uh, has ha- there's there's been a strong uh, element of this in Sunni worship. In fact, back in the 1880s, there was a um, uh, an imam who claimed to be the Eleventh uh, Imam, and he was Sunni coming out of uh, of uh, Sudan, and this led to a huge revolt against the British, and this was what gave rise to the uh, to the whole. Uh, he captured Khartoum, and the British sent uh, Charles Gordon down there, who was a somewhat uh, eccentric uh, evangelical Christian, and uh, he had been successful uh, some years earlier in wiping out the slave trade. Uh, in Sudan, and so they sent Gordon down there because he wasn't an official member of the British uh, military. They thought that he could, uh, with all of his contacts, could uh, could defeat the uh, the Mahdi, and he didn't. And this is uh, immortalized, you might say, in the film Khartoum, with uh, Charlton Heston as uh, Gordon and uh, Lawrence Olivier as the Mahdi. He had a lot of makeup to. Make that work, but it's a great movie. You ought to watch it. It's it's uh, generally accurate historically, but when you think about this, this is what uh, Ahmadinejad in in Iraq. Now he's he's Shia. I mean in Iran he's Shia, but he thinks that if they can stir up enough chaos in the world today, then this will force the return of the. 11th Imam, the Mahdi. And so that's why he's driving so hard to get nuclear weapons as he thinks that he can um, can generate this and create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, the interesting thing is in within historic mainstream Islam, there is not an emphasis on the return of the Mahdi in, es- in, in their eschatology. But among these radicalized uh Imams and in the radicalized theology that's developed in the last hundred years or so, there's the belief that the Mahdi is going to come back to Mecca, and then he's going to hook up with the Muslim Jesus. That's not the biblical Jesus, because the Muslim Jesus hates Jews and Christians, and the Mahdi hooks up with the uh, with the uh, uh, Muslim Jesus. They go to they go up into this area, the town I couldn't remember the name of earlier, up north of Baghdad. Uh, where the the Shia, I mean the Sunni terrorists blew the golden dome off the top of the mosque. He's supposed to appear there, and then from there they go to Jerusalem. And so it is there that they launch this judgment where they kill all the Jews and all the Christians. So Jerusalem then, which historically is not a major element, uh, isn't a major player in Islamic thought uh, in the, Jerusalem is mentioned over 720 times in the, in the Old Testament by the name Jerusalem, by the name the city of David or uh, Zion or some other uh, nickname like that. It's referred over 950 times in the Old Testament, and it's not mentioned one time in the Quran. Uh, 
It's mentioned a few times in the Hadith and uh, various uh, other uh, Islamic writings, but it plays no role in historic Islam. In fact, uh, Muhammad wanted the, the uh, Muslims had to pray towards Mecca, which meant that their back would be towards Jerusalem, and it was intentional that way. Jerusalem wasn't important, but these radicalized elements have made Jerusalem the focal point here in in their uh, understanding of eschatology. Now, what that means is that every time there is an apparent defeat of the West, when the Russians backed out of Afghanistan, the al-Qaeda under... um, you know, bin Laden, uh, see this as a victory. Let's go out and recruit now because when the, when Islam starts turning back the West, this is an indication that the Mahdi is coming and we're near the end of days. Then when, uh, the, the Jews backed out of Lebanon back in the, uh, in the 80s, that again is interpreted by the radicalized elements as as a weakness of the West and that uh, Islam is winning. And again, uh, the return of the Mahdi is near and we're near the end of days. And then when Israel pulled out of Gaza, which really brought a lot of peace to the area and really solved those problems, didn't it? And uh, when they came out of Gaza a couple of years ago in 2006, again, that's interpreted as Islam in ascendancy and they're winning and the Jews and the Christians are losing, and it's not going to be long before the Mahdi comes back, and we're going to have victory. And now when you have a president of the United States uh, trying to order uh, Israelis to stop building uh, in the in uh, East Jerusalem, and he's more concerned about a few apartments that the Jews might build in East Jerusalem than the Iranians getting a nuclear weapon, which is absolutely ab- absurd. Uh, but he's putting pressure on that. That is viewed by radicalized Islam as we're winning, they're losing. Let's go recruit more people because we're obviously uh, we we're obviously have the momentum going here, and it won't be long before we're into the end of day scenario. And so, when you have an have a Western democracies who are so secularized that they can't understand the significance of these. Uh, of the theology and the impact of this on the thinking in uh, the radicalized Islamic elements, then you start making really bad decisions from a position of weakness, and it sets you up for even greater, uh, greater terrorism. But this is all laid out uh, somewhat, the trends at least, in terms of biblical prophecy, but it doesn't, won't come to fruition until we get into that future tribulation period, which may not be in our lifetime. I can't tell you how many people I know who think that somehow tomorrow the rapture is going to occur, and they jump to that conclusion. And I remember people thinking that back in the in the 60s and in the 70s, and some really great theologians and prophetic scholars who are now in heaven and they never saw what they thought would happen in their lifetime. So, uh, unfortunately, too many people get a little bit uh, hyper-concerned about, um, about what is taking place. So what we see, what I want to emphasize here is the prophetic significance of Jerusalem and the importance of Jerusalem, not just in terms of what the Bible says about, about eschatology in the future, but also how it's misused and abused within the uh, the current system of uh, uh, radicalized Islamic theology. So if what happens, if we force a political decision, 
to have the uh, have the Jews stop uh, controlling East Jerusalem, then you've got a number of major problems. It's going to just feed the the fury and the fervor of their um, uh, of their their eschatology, thinking that the Mahdi is about to come back. Secondly, is because the the influence of radical Wahhabi theology which is what influences the Muslim Brotherhood. They're responsible for the assassination of Anwar Sadat in Egypt, and the Muslim Brotherhood's Palestinian wing is called Hamas. And so Hamas has been completely influenced by um, by this radicalized Wahhabi theology so that if... Uh, and and they're spreading their poison all throughout the Palestinians. So if there is a... Uh, if they give back that territory in East Jerusalem to the Palestinians, then it's not only going to encourage them in terms of their view of eschatology, but they're not going to have any respect for anybody's uh, favorite holy sites. They're going to, uh, most likely, you can expect them to come in and destroy not only Jewish sites and Christian sites, but moderate Muslim sites, which has been their historic behavior over the last 30 or 40 years. So the, the, this, this whole approach on East Jerusalem, uh, last week, by the way, on the, I think it was, uh, maybe a week ago was Jerusalem Day, which is a rather new, uh, new holiday, emphasizing, and it's the, in, in memory of taking the, uh, uh, regaining control of Jerusalem in the 1967 war. That, that Jerusalem is important. We have to pay attention to this. There, the, the scripture gives us a framework for looking at it. We can interpret, we can understand the trends of today because the, the wars between radicalized Islam and the Jews and Christians, all of this is part of an overarching spiritual conflict, which we usually refer to as the angelic conflict. It's not just a, 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 a human uh, endeavor. There are much greater forces at work, and so we can sit by on the sidelines, as it were, and have a greater understanding and appreciation for what is going on. But what happens eventually, after the tribulation, as I've pointed out, there's a return, uh, unification of, of Jerusalem, a restoration of the Jews to the land, and a reconstruction of a new temple that's described in Ezekiel 40 to 48, which becomes the center of the spiritual life for uh, the for the world in the millennial kingdom, and so I'll come back next week. We'll come back and focus on that in in more de- detail, uh, looking at a number of different things in relation to um, uh, in in relation to the sacrifices that are going to be in the millennial temple and how that fits into things and other things like that. I was going to leave a little bit of time for any questions if anybody had any questions, but we're out of time, so. Uh, Judy, you have a question. That hand went up really fast. What's it going to be like in the millennial kingdom? I don't to have resurrected people in immortal bodies. I don't know. Yeah, that, that, right. Well, there'll be resurrected people and mortal people. There's going to it's going to be an interesting. Yeah, interesting population. I have no idea. I I haven't been there. I can't, I can't answer that. Your frame of reference might be better than mine. I don't know.
Which one? Karbala. Karbala, yeah. That's right. Karbala, where the uh, gold-domed mosque was, yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to recognize you do have a plan even in the midst of the chaos we see around us. It's no different from the chaos that... Uh, the ancient Jews saw surrounding uh, the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of the Assyrians or the southern kingdom at the time of the Babylonians. And yet, even though there was uh, the defeat that occurred there and the conquest, all the different things that have happened throughout history, nevertheless, we know you are in control, and that gives us a tremendous sense of hope, and we understand what our future destiny is. And so we can, uh, in that sense, relax and trust in you and be about our our primary mission in terms of living out the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.